no bigger than my thumbnail Stars fit in the bottom of my glass I gave you my heart a long time ago Now there's just a space where the pain used to grow There's a long and short of it The very thought of it Well that's a proof But ever loving truth of it I'm hopelessly over my head I'm hopelessly over my head Sad case of love Sad case of love Life is beautiful Time is better than late You are beautiful too And love is better than hate That's a long and short of it The very thought of it Well that's a proof The ever-loving truth of it I'm hopelessly over my head I'm over my head Sad case of love Sad case of love That's a long and short of it The very thought of it Well that's a proof The ever-loving truth of it I'm hopelessly over my head I'm hopelessly over my head Sad case of love 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 Sad Welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. I've got the huge pleasure welcoming Kimberly Rue here today and playing a, a range of songs from across his career. 
We'll be covering his time in the Soft Boys, uh, Solar Material, Katrina and the Ways, and his uh, making with uh, Lee Caveberry. Kimberly and Lee have a album out at the minute. Enjoy the rest of your day. And we heard Sad Case from that very LP. Lee, you're also here today. So uh, welcome, Lee, and welcome, Kim. Hello. Hello. Jason. Hello. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> I think I'm right, uh, right in saying that you're husband and wife duo. We are indeed. We are, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell us uh, a little bit about Enjoy the Rest of Your Day, uh, Sad Case? Well, I'm very glad you picked out Sad Case, because nobody else has. Um, It's a kind of, dare I say, it's sort of thoughtful little song. It goes like, the moon's no bigger than my thumbnail, stars fell in the bottom of my glass. Well, I gave you my heart a long time ago, now there's just a pain where, now there's just a space where the pain is to grow. And it's sort of quite kind of vague and whimsical and sort of, dare I say it, airy-fairy. Mm. I was just locking the garage, you know, and I looked up at the the night sky, you know, and there was the moon. And it was just one of those moments. And I thought, like, I'm not very good at putting that kind of thing into music, you know, but... um. Yeah, and I think the best I could hope for it would be kind of maybe number like three, four, or five on an album or something. You know, when they've already been bludgeoned by a bit of uh, wigging it and rocking and rolling. So uh, you know, that's where we put it. But I, I'm I'm really not sad that you uh, picked it out. My pleasure. So, um, Lee, am I right that this is the first album of original material from you both in in relation to as a duo? Uh, yeah, it's the first one that's actually been built. Right. Um, it's the first one that's actually had any of my songs on it at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, I have actually played bass and helped Kimberly with the work up of all the other solo albums he's done since Tunnel Into Summer, I think. Yeah, just to give you a sort of chronology on that. Yeah. Yeah, if you go back to about 1998, then, uh, yeah, Lee and I, yeah, we we joined forces and uh, did about a dozen Kimberly Rue albums, but I was basically bashing everything out with Lee, kind of as we went along. In the meantime, and also in that time, like Lee made a solo album, and we made uh, two albums, two Kim and Lee albums of covers, and we made a Kim and Lee album uh, of uh, tribute to the Trunks. And uh, we kind of we got to the point where we decided, you know, we were going to just do this. We've been doing it anyway, but we're like we were going to do it as a team. You know, everything was going to be run. Everything was going to be kind of run back and forth. You know, with the two of us. Like we finally got to that point with enjoy the rest of your day, and it actually I'm knocking on a bit now, but it actually looks like there are going to be another two Kim and Lee albums, yeah. like of original material. So um, yeah, sort of hanging in there. Going back to not quite the start, but kind of that more of that early period. Our next track, Kim, is uh, "Stomping All Over the World," and was that released when you were in the Soft Boys? And was that some some of the the early solo material that you released? It's "Stomping All Over the World." Yeah, that was released uh, during the lifetime of, of the Soft Boys. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these songs were going to 
you know, like singles and that, which we're going to talk about. Mm. I mean, it's to do with the workings of the record business. You know, you join a band, mm. for example, the softballers, and then, you know, you get a recording contract with a record label. You get different people coming in. And, um, yeah, the softballers in their sort of three or four-year lifespan made, I think, two albums. Mm. And uh, people didn't re- really make a lot of singles in those days. But I remember in 1980, I mean, somebody said, oh, Ken, you've got to make a single. Yeah. And um, I did. Uh, it's got two B-sides. I mean, we, re- we recorded three songs with Pat Collier in Alaska Studios mm. in London with the other soft boys accompanying me. You know, I was doing, you know, doing a little bit of songwriting at the time. Yeah, that's stomping all over the world. Of course, you know, nothing happens. And then, like, six months later, the, uh, the band split up. So um, there you go. Obviously, very, very prodigious songwriter, but in relation to the Soft Boys, that's mainly kind of Robin's material. Was that as kind yeah. of a, a conscious thing? That, that... Robin, I mean, if you, you think about it, I, I always think a good parallel is like Lou Reed and the Velvet Undergrounds. No, I mean, if you take the Velvet Underground, I mean, like Lou Reed is like the songwriter and the lead singer. But you know, the band also had a unique sound. And also, Lou Reed went on to have a very long and distinguished career yes. you know, after those kind of relatively short... I mean, Robin was 
right. The, the sort of creative heart of the thing, absolutely. I mean, I could write songs even then. I wouldn't say I was prodigious. It's just that a, a lot of time has gone by. Yeah. So if you look at what there is, it's actually piled up. You met Robin when he moved to Cambridge in the mid-70s? Uh, yeah, that's right. He moved to Cambridge in uh, 1975. Yeah. Uh, left Cambridge in 1980. And everybody uh, yeah, at the time lived in Cambridge. And Only the Stones Remain is quite a, a well-regarded song from the Soft Boys, one of many people's favourites. Um, but, but I think it was one of the sort of last recordings that you did? Abs- yes. I mean, it's, it's one of my favourites too. I mean, it's a great song. And the band is like firing on all cylinders. Yeah. And um, like, as I say, we made two albums in the lifetime of the bands. And uh, it wasn't like wasn't quite as organised as, you know, like you went in and did an album, you know, like in mm. Six Weeks in Compass Point in Nassau or anything like that. It was more like, you, more like maybe you do a day's recording with Pat Collar in Alaska Studios and then you like go and do a couple of gigs like in Birmingham or Newcastle or something and then maybe a bit more rehearsing and recording. And uh, as I say, the... The Soft Boys broke up in February 1991. I mean, at that point, I think we had maybe three or four songs in the can, and one of those was uh, Only the Stones Remain, which was undoubtedly our our best song that we had kind of waiting to be unleashed at the time. And uh, there was an album that came out posthumously called Two Halves for the Price of One, where like the side one was like the studio recordings, you know, with only the Stones Remainers track one. And then side two was um a live recording uh from the Hope and Anchor. But uh yeah, you got only the Stones Remain as a single. Actually I, I didn't know it was a single. I'm sure mm. in the nineteen eighties there were all kinds of people that would like press, you know, like and singles or something like that. You know, that might well have that might well have escaped me.
and you mentioned uh, Robin moving out of Cambridge then. Was it just that uh, Robin went into want to move on to solo uh, pastures and, and just yeah. have a change of scene? Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, I don't know if you've ever talked to him, but obviously my perspective at the time, you know, like I was sort of quite immature and sort of naive. And then to me, it just looks as if, well, this is a band, so this is what we do, you know, and we'll do this. And, uh, you know, we'll like, we'll make records, we'll do gigs, and, you know, why would anybody want to do anything different? Actually, I wasn't really looking at it from anybody else's point of view. Hmm. Obviously, from Robin's point of view, I mean, with the benefit now of, like, 45 years of hindsight, I can look back and say, okay, he was on a sort of a journey, a sort of creative journey in his life, you know, and that was kind of um, a stop along the way when it's an important stop. But, um, you know, I couldn't possibly have had that perspective, you know, at the time. But I've got it now, I hope. (laughs) So you reconnected with Alex Cooper, who you'd played in like an embryonic version of The Waves prior to The Soft Boys? Yeah, I I, uh, gave Alex a call. He had uh, formed a band with uh, Vince and Katrina from uh, of Katrina the Waves fame and uh, Bob Jenkins. So, um, yeah. At the start of this um, new incarnation of the Waves, were you, were you the, the sort of lead vocalist? Uh, it was kind of a strange situation for me because like, I was like the only songwriter. Right. They hadn't sort of been involved with anybody who's doing original material, I thought I would like get some recording organised you know, with Pat Collier. I mean, I still, in theory, had a record company, which was Armageddon Records. Mm. The guys very kindly like, agreed to do a bit of rehearsing and recording with me. And then we tentatively... And like revived the name The Waves and did a few gigs. But it took me a long time to uh, realise that actually, like we, Katrina was a, like a fantastic lead singer and that it was like completely mad to kind of do anything different. Mm. And that also Bob, who's like the original bass player, kind of drifted, sort of, out of our orbits, and uh, I mean, I'm I'm on great terms with Bob these days, but um, you know, I I don't think it was a sort of um, uh, as functioning a unit mm. as a five piece with Bob as it became when uh, it was the four of us, and uh, we got like our um, we very little happens at first there are very few like opportunities it was also like a very kind of it seems to be a kind of lean time for live music generally i mean guitar bands were very unfashionable and like venues were closing down and like local pubs were kind of mm. sort of abandoning like their policy of putting on local bands and so on and um we did e- eventually um we actually got a call from like a local booking agent, a, a guy called John Gammon from Ely, who, um, yeah, he died recently, but it's kind of very sad. But uh, he actually said, you know, I've 
I want to book you guys into like a 50 day tour of like RAF bases, and then we suddenly found that um, it was a sort of it was going to be like the making or breaking of the band sort of as a unit, you know. And I think it sort of um, just kind of toughened up the sound a little bit, you know. And uh, we were actually doing a few covers like um, Knock on Wood and stuff. Mm. And uh, actually, the Blues Brothers film had just come out, but it actually was not many people knew about it. You know, it wasn't the phenomenon that it became later. And we were really doing just like mouldy old songs, you know. But obviously, they were going down really well because they were great songs. Mm. But I mean, you know, we were a guitar band. We were very unfashionable. We were playing like very unfashionable covers. And we were certainly playing on fashionable gigs like these RAF bases. But it kind of mm. um, bashed the thing into shape, you know. And uh, we were different. You know, we didn't sound like an 80s band. And I think and say that with an element of pride, you know, because I'm not a huge fan of the 1980s. No. I mean, I was like 28 mm. or something in 1980, so uh, it was a, I was a bit of a late developer, you know, and I think it was too late to sort of become <laughs> a kind of um, style-conscious sort of new romantic or, or something like that. You can hear it through, you know, some of the Waves recordings like Brown Eyed Sun, very direct, very poppy in a way, but poppy yeah. in a sort of classic classic mould rather than um, something that dates. I'm very glad it's coming over that way in, in 2020, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there was no big master plan at the time, but, you know, that was just the kind of music that we liked, you know? You're my jealous brown eyes, son I know everything you've done you're my jealous brown eyes, son. I know everything you've done. You've been messing around with her. Please go back the way you were.
just for a bit of a sort of change, because mm-hmm. I actually play, I think, what is the original version of Walking on Sunshine. And obviously that it, a few years after its first release, I think you guys re-recorded it and it, it became such a such a popular song across the world. What was the sort of genesis of that song? What was your inspiration? Yeah, well, I wish I knew, because then I'd, um, <laughs> I'd kind of I'm walking on sunshine all the time, you know? <laughs> Apparently, Katrina always says that he turned up with it at the studio with terrible cold. Oh. <laughs> but it cheered me up. There was this long kind of... Um, yeah. Four-year period, like 1981 to five, we were trying to get a foot on the ladder. So it wasn't like you know we got together and we started playing at a fashionable club and we were spotted. I, I know I'm saying we were unfashionable, but um, well, we had to get uh, we had to go to Canada, didn't we? Well, that was part of the story. Yeah, Alex, to his great credit, actually said, "Okay, we're going to." make and press a thousand albums and on that album which was just imaginatively called Katrina and the Waves yeah Walking on Sunshine was on there and on the strength of that we got picked up by the Soft Boys label in Canada which was Attic Records little independent label over there and um, we got picked up by Silvertown Oh, yeah, you got Walking on Sunshine, um, yeah, on Asset Records. Yeah, they actually re-released that um, self-produced album uh, in Canada in uh, 1984, I think. And then finally, in 1985, uh, we actually got... Well, we got turned out by EMI in this country, but we did get signed by EMI in New York. And you've got a remix your stuff in New York um, with um, our uh, producer, Scott Litz, you know, who I didn't really know anything about at the time, but, I mean, he's got a fantastic CV, so look him up. It was it R.E.M.? R.E.M. he worked with? Hello, oh. uh, yeah, mm. yeah. I think by this time, we'd uh, re-recorded Walking on Sunshine with the horn parts, and then Scott said, oh, you've got to have a drum intro. So he... Just, um, I think Alex gave the performance of his lifetime on drums and uh, they kind of pasted in some bars of drums at the beginning of the song and um, Katrina gave a performance of a lifetime on the vocal. What was your view in relation to remodelling Walking on Sunshine? Was it something that you welcomed because you'd had more basic, more sort of simpler version in the past or was it actually that you were quite protective of the first version? Well, I didn't know. You know, I, I thought I, I had something as like, a creative person, but I was also like deferential to other people, other creative people. I mean, if you actually had a recording contract and they like employed a producer and the producer said, you've got to have a drum intro. I mean, to me, that was a bit like... Um, you know, being at school or something, and the teacher saying you've got to do your homework, you know, because there was that element of them like being an authority, you know, and that's like so it's definitely something you had to do. I don't mean I like I did it grudgingly. Anyway, it was just like I thought that was what was supposed to happen. You know, you kind of went through these stages in your career, and then um, 
But also I realised later on actually what it was. It was people who were actually taking an interest in what you were doing. And of course, later on, I mean, we very much got into the doldrums career-wise and nobody was taking an interest in what we were doing. Yes. So we would just argue about it amongst ourselves. You know. Well, I mean, we argued anyway. But I mean, you know, at the time we're talking about the early 80s, I didn't have any of that perspective. You mentioned about interesting in Canada. Yeah. Did you go over to Canada? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we got signed in Canada. So, you know, we got a booking agent in Canada. And they said, OK, you're touring Canada. So, um, you know, we went over there and um, 
sort of drove around Canada in a van, you know, like doing gigs. Hmm. And, you know, we were like a real band, you know. And, um, <laughs> and uh, hmm. like, you know, that's what you're supposed to do, you know. And, you know, like, you'd turn up, you'd hit town, you know, like you'd, in like Thunder Bay or somewhere like that, you know, in some kind of horrible, filthy little dive, you know. And then you hmm. kind of play like deafeningly loud, you know, and hope that everybody would go nuts. And then... Uh, you know, stay in some sort of grubby motel and then jump back in the van and, like, drive hundreds of kilometres onto the next one, etc. It does seem that there was a bit of a sort of build-up or certain amount of momentum before the re-release or re-recording of, of Walking on Sunshine because the Bangles took going down to Liverpool, which I think was off your Katrina and the Waves album, and recorded it. Well, yeah, I mean, that was a, a sort of a badge of honour, really. Yeah, I mean, the Bangles were, like, very fashionable at the time, and they got they got talked about a lot uh, in the press. And um, I like their sound, and I like them, and I thought, you know, they had some good songs of their own. And, uh, you know, and they were sort of subsequently successful. You know, they had some hits. Did they, did they, um, didn't they pick it up off a kind of taste uh, sampler al- uh, album? Because they, they were with the same record company or in Canada or something like that? Well, they had the um, Canadian album, yeah. Yeah. Which was like the original, the one that said Alex said, you know, you're going to make your own album. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, they must have wanted to buy it you know, for some reason. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, maybe this is the right thing for us. All this is interesting. Yeah, yeah. But um, we never actually um, like, continued. We got a tiny bit of credibility from that. But that actually particular avenue of progress kind of came to a dead stop. You know, that nothing like that ever happened again. And uh, well, actually, that's not quite true because Celine Dion did one of your songs recently, didn't fairly recently? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, and that was she must have heard that song at the time. Yeah, apparently, yes. Yeah. Although, yeah. although you don't really get credibility points for that for no. Celine Dion. I mean, it's interesting, you know. I mean, in 1984, we did get a few points for yeah. the Bengals, but as I say, that kind of fizzled out, you yeah. know, and then. Anybody that talks to me today, you know, like 35 years later, you know, they'll always refer back to like before 1985. You know, people aren't really, you know, there's that tiny little bit of fan interest. And obviously we're all kind of getting, up, getting on a bit now.
kind of re-recorded uh, Walking on Sunshine. Then there was that album again, big success. And then you recorded another album in Katrina and the, the Waves called Waves, but it seemed to be a, a bit of a difference in songwriting for the album yeah. and also kind of it wasn't as well received. Yeah. Well, actually, the other guys, um, you know, wanted to um, do some songwriting, you know. And, um, you know, I think if you talk to Alex now, he would hold up his hand and say, oh, fair enough. You know, I mean, we we saw that, you know, Ken was, like, doing well as a songwriter. We thought, you know, and thought, you know, we can do this, you know, but actually... He's probably a better songwriter. If I can be really big-headed. Uh, mm. Yeah, I mean, Katrina definitely can write songs. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no disputing that. And, I mean, you know, Vince can definitely write songs. I don't think they're, either of them are people that will actually have sat down in their lives and just wrote some rotes. You know, I think they've, they've kind of been sort of a bit more on and off about it. But yeah, I mean, they've got, I mean, one thing about Katrina and the Waves, it's not really like um, the um, like the Kinks or something, where there is like, Roe Davis is the lead singer and the, the songwriter, the main songwriter. I mean, you know, Katrina was you know, like the most dynamic lead singer. Alex was, I mean, if it hadn't been for him, Basically, Alex and his first wife, who were like our management team. You know, if it was not for them, I mean, I would probably would not be here talking to you today. Just going back to Lovely Lindsay, because I think there was only a, a pair of tracks from that album that, that you yeah. wrote. Again, very strong and uh, again, that classic timeless yeah. pop feel, but not in an 80s sense. I mean, that's, yeah, good kind of basic rock and roll song, man. Yeah? Yeah, it's just when you can play that on the guitar and then people will get it, you know, they'll kind of, yeah, I mean, a lot of my songs, like, tend to, I try and have, like, bulletproof guitar parts in them, where I can just sort of keep going until people realise what it's supposed, what the song's supposed to be.
Our next track is, is again, Katrina the Waves and Rock and Roll Girl. For me, that's one of uh, my favourites from the era of the band. It's a, more of a direct yeah. song rather than something that yeah. states. I'm really not sure, actually. You've picked a few songs there which have got... Um, that's another one where it just goes... You know, like on the guitar. And then that's really... That's all there... I mean, that's the kind of the thing that keeps coming back in the song. Yeah. No, and that's quite. I mean, maybe the the lyrics are a little bit generic. And I'd like the idea of writing a song called Rock and Roll Girl. You know, it's either going to be like a huge anthem, or it's going to be a, a 
a total cliche. Mm. It just depends if it's any good. I mean, like, I love rock and roll, but it's like an undisputed cast iron anthem. I don't think, I mean, Rock and Roll Girl, I mean, that wasn't a hits record, mm. so um, it isn't an anthem. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it might have been. That song was credited yeah. to the whole band. Who actually wrote it, or was it a collaborative effort? Um, well, that one, I actually wrote it, and then Katrina changed the words. Right, so, right. yeah, I mean, there's an, an element, you know, to more the sort of thing that she would sing, you know, if it was her singing it, if, which it was. There were a few like that. Obviously, if you get a band where the the songwriter isn't the lead singer, I mean, then you know you're probably going to get a few instances of that coming up. So yeah, fair enough.
we go into towards the the mid nineties, nineteen ninety five here, and, and walking where the roses grow. I think for me, it's one of your great songs, but not widely known. No, it isn't known at all. No, I mean we really weren't selling records at all. You know, really after um, walking on the sunshine, and um, yeah, I mean. I'm I'm really impressed that you picked out these um, songs as like strong guitarist songs. Mm. I mean, a lot of this um, Katrina and the Waves career was done like in the era of like AOR rock, you know. So which was going on the t- on the time, and they said, "Well, you've got a girl singer." So like the top g- girl singers are like Madonna and Cher. Etc. So you've got to be more like that. So everything has to be big, you know, and like you have to be big stars, you know, and you have to take yourselves very seriously. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I mean, I do take it seriously, but I mean, try and take it seriously, but lightly at the same time. So we have a lot of songs on records which were quite heavily produced. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you get a song with like a guitar riff on it. You know, like down, 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 da 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 You know, which is just a kind of picking out a chain on the guitar, which is which is nice. And then, you know, and that makes it sort of fairly bulletproof, and you can always knock it out live. Weirdly, some of these songs that you picked out, I thought. Well, actually, I haven't listened to that for a very long time, so I better go back and hear it. And um, so, you know, so you go on YouTube because that's convenient. And then there's actually a version on YouTube of Katrina Mm. with her band at the time, actually singing Walking Where the Roses Grow in 2015. So, uh, which I, I hadn't heard before. You know, something I just heard about the other day. So it's actually, what's that? Um, 20 years after it wasn't a hit, she sort of decided to revive that Mm. song for her live show with her sort of whatever band it was at the time. And, um, you know, it's it's fair. You know, it's got that sort of thing on the guitar and it's got that melody. Admittedly, it's got the word walking in it, which is maybe a bit cheesy after walking in the sunshine. You can't ban all songs with like sunshine in the title or, or walking on the grounds of it not being original after you've done walking on sunshine. I'm assuming kind of that decade after walking on sunshine was a bit more difficult because you, I assume yeah. you record companies were trying to push you kind of to sound a certain way and then there's the... Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were always like, well, obviously we had delusions of grandeur because we had a hit records. So, you know, we thought we were a big band, maybe like bigger than we were. Actually, when we had Walking on Sunshine, I think we had two guys in the crew. And I think by about 1989, I think we had six, you know. So we were actually mm. getting more delusions of grandeur at the same time as our stock in trade was going down. Basically, we were always out of control. We were always scrapping around. You know, we were always like short of cash and... Um, and we're like disorganised and arguing. For not very much of it was about the music. You know, I'm sure you hear this kind of thing from bands all the time. But that was actually the kind of the nature of the relationship, really. Well, I ain't too hip, but I've been told the streets of the city are paved with gold. 
Obviously, 1997, you and the band had a last hurrah of commercial success and, and very, very prominent. And perversely, I've chosen a song uh, sung by you, a much more kind of reflective song, Girl With Blue Eyes, um, Love Shine A Light. Did you write that for Eurovision or was it just seen as a, a fitting for Eurovision? Well, it's another song in, in the repertoire. And uh, Katrina and I made, uh, made a demo of it. Uh, the system was with the Eurovision Song Contest at the time, and there wasn't much else happening with, uh, commercially with the band at the time. You know, I'm not saying that it was in desperation, but I mean it was in the background of not having an organised career direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the system at the time with the Eurovision Song Contest for this country was that anybody could send in a cassette of the song they wanted to represent the UK in the Eurovision Song Contest to the BBC. And Terry Wogan, who did the breakfast show on national radio at the time, the late Terry Wogan, would actually play the best of these cassettes on the radio at breakfast. And people would vote. And um, Alex, to his great credit, sent in a cassette of Love Shine the Lights. And uh, Terry Wogan played it on BBC Radio at breakfast time, and uh, it won. And that's how we came to represent the UK. 
in the contest in 1997. And uh, then, of course, uh, we had to uh, make an album, like within, had to finish an album within a fairly short time. You know, not before we won, but I mean, after we won, we were then sort of given the opportunity to put an album on it. So, needless to say, we were short of material. And, well, we weren't short of material, but we were short of like usable recordings. And um, the band actually put on the album a recording of me just singing a song on my own with my acoustic guitar, which is a uh, girl with blue eyes. And I'd actually, I don't think I'd listened to that since 1997. But it's kind of. It's sort of quite rom- It's a sort of general, generally sort of vaguely romantic thing, which is kind of um, quite endearing, you know. But I'm not, yeah, I admit I didn't listen to it in context of the whole album, but I imagine it'd be quite a nice change of pace. slope to climb whatever happiness was measured out to us across the years after all it far outweighed the tears girl with blue eyes I love you and if it's time to have a child It's time to have a child Would I be there at the end? Would I just be one old friend? Whatever happiness was Measured out to us across the years After all, it far outweighed the tears Girl with blue eyes Was measured out to us across the years. After all, it far outweighed the tears. Girl with blue eyes, I love you. Finally, as Katrina and the Waves, after over 15 years, um, decided to go your separate ways? Yeah. Of course, we didn't know it would be a last who at the time, but mm. yeah, we did. Yes, I mean, uh, particularly Katrina, who sort of took the opportunity to, um, you know, like, start her own band, sort of have her own career yeah. based around Eurovision, which, of course, happens every year, and walking on sunshine. So, um, yeah, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, the timing of that actually gave me the opportunity to really get a working relationship going with Lee. You know? So, I mean, I'm not in any way a solo artist or a frontman or a lead vocalist. 
or a showman yeah. or anything like that. But I'm actually quite good at collaborating, you know, like being part of a team. So that's really loosely given me a chance to be part of a team, you know. So which is I think while we've been able to kind of just keep being creative. And uh, she's introduced me to a lot of you know, people and places around the, the music scene in Cambridge or reintroduced me. So, um, you know, it's been um, a very viable way of like, um, keeping going with the music. And our next track is uh, Simple Pleasures from uh, Tunnel Into Summer from uh, 20 years ago now, gosh. Yeah. You linked up with uh, quite a number of people for that album, I think there's Nate, you know, Robin, I think Robin was there, Glenn Tilbrook, for example, and, and yeah, Andy Metcalf. That's right, yeah. I mean, there was a bit of an element of like, I hadn't made what they call a solo album before. Well, there had been a thing called Bible of Box, but I mean, it wasn't, which wasn't made by me intentionally as a solo album, but yeah. you know, I thought you were supposed to get loads of people on there. So, <laughs> You know, it's a kind of drama. Well, I mean, that's been very rude about the people, but there's an element of trying to drum up as much interest as, as possible, which, of course, didn't work. Yeah, I think everybody was on time to summer. Did you find, Kim, that um, you'd actually now be able to showcase your own sound ra- rather than having the commercial pressures or, or the influence of other bandmates with differing views? Yeah, um I mean, that's a double-edged sword, you know. One, I mean, I have tried making demos in the studio. Mm. I mean, one of the things we did in Katrina and the Ways was to um, buy a little bit of land and kind of build a studio on it. So it's been... Uh, it's still there. And uh, very excitedly, when we first heard that, I would just go into the studio and use it and then like go to sleep on the couch and get up the next morning and continue and so on. You know, like with the sort of novelty of it. And I would try and just make recordings, you know, it'd be just me. And uh, that is a double-edged sword because I don't think that's um, a way to make great music. You know, I think the way is to kind of cooperate with other people. Choice. 
next track screaming lord such which is from your great central revisited album did you actually is this actually a true story uh yes it is yeah 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 1973 i think so what band what band was that then i think that would have been in like a student band uh, that i was in at the time in cambridge and um Mm. very early days and um we actually got but you know you heard of like the um the Cambridge Mayball. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah um, you know, different colleges will have, um, you know, what they call the Mayball. And uh, in those days, they would kind of book a few name bands and a few local bands. And suddenly you'd find you were like on the bill with somebody like Screaming Lord Such, you know. And, um, uh, we're shaking Stevens. Or exactly, you know, some of the, the great... <laughs> The great names. And so you just be standing there, like at the side of the stage, watching this. And um, uh, I think that's one of the first times when I thought, well, actually, this is not kind of great music, you know, like being done by a great artist with a great band. You know, I mean, he definitely had something, you know, and he was part of history, but, um, you know, it's sort of slightly poignant. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of poignant song, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's kind of um, the sound of it is looking yeah. back on, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, because obviously later he committed, I think he hanged himself, because, um, and, mm. you know, it's in that he'd been like suffering from depression, like pretty much all the time. And um, I'm not very good at writing songs about serious subjects, but I mean, I'm quite proud of that one. So uh, thanks for picking your notes. Also from around that period, I think um, the, the release being in 2002, we have I Love Lucy from Next Door Land, which was the reconvened Soft Boys. So, what was the um, what was the genesis of that? I think you'd been you'd played with Robin um, in in that period or just before that, anyhow, as well. Yeah, I mean, picture the same. I mean, we dismantled in 1981, uh, February. 
As I say, I mean, Robin, you know, he, he never stops, really. I mean, he was always, like, touring and recording, you know, the whole time. And I would kind of mm. just very occasionally, I would just kind of, it'd be like a comet, you know, passing through the solar system. I would just sort of pass briefly through his solar system. Yeah, that Soft Boys revival, which ran for a couple of years, I mean, that was by far the biggest manifestation of um, my getting involved with Robin again. You know, we'd actually be, like, on the road, you know, not seeing him every day, you know. And that was, like, with all three of us, mm. you know, from the, the Soft Boys, from the, the Underwater Moonlight lineup of the Soft Boys. But I think that was, you know... I mean, with Robin, it's, with the benefit of hindsight, it seems to be a matter of the right thing at the right time. And now this was 20 years ago, and you can say that was the right thing for him then. Mm. And obviously since then, he just, you know, he just keeps going forward, really. You know, he doesn't, yeah, I mean, we haven't done that again since. <laughs> but, you know, I do see him from every so often. When he comes to the UK. Yeah, he comes to the UK. Oh, yeah. I mean, he lives in Nashville. Yeah. If it's propitious, you know, if the stars are aligned, you know, then I'll get a text message, you know. Like, <laughs> I won't get a phone call, you know, but I will get a, a text message. What was the dynamics in the group? Because obviously a lot of time had passed and, and music had passed since. I do remember, actually, vividly. As I, said, I was asking myself the question, uh, question what's it going to be like? So, you know, we booked our first rehearsal and so we turned up and plugged in and started playing our first song. And it actually seemed like the next rehearsal after the last one we'd had 20 years before. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, right, we're on to the next rehearsal now, you know, and the next batch of material. And, um, you know, it was quite um, sort of... Um, it was simply that, you know, it's just like getting on with it. Or oh, I better just add a PS to I Love Lucy. I think the three other members of the band have got a co-write on that, not because we actually did any writing, but because Robin liked to have a song. I think on the Underwater Moonlight album, you know, he wanted a song which was credited to the, the band so everybody would get something which is very fun. And then he did the same thing on Next Door Lands, which is the album that I Love Lucy's on. So that's a kind of, um, yeah, just in case anybody looked at the credits and was wondering, yeah, it wasn't a kind of, a sort of huge collaboration.
And now we do go to a book more up to date in 2013 and uh, a track from Healing Broadway, uh, another of your solo albums and bloody old England. When when I heard this, um, mm-hmm. got that yeah. kind of kinks English feel to it. Well, that's, that is definitely a compliment. There's a poem by John Bushman where there's a line which includes the words bloody old England. So, yeah, I mean, that's what... That's the phrase. Uh, that's where it comes from. Yeah, but I mean, I'm very happy with the Kinks reference. And um, yeah, we introduce that song. We do that one live all the time. Actually, it's it's a real kind of dependable live song, and we introduce it as our new national anthem. <laughs> Which actually, considering the way things are going with the UK, then England might need a national anthem. Well, I've tried flying south for the winter But I cried in my tequila all the while You can stuff your sangria If some fish and chips are near I'm going back to my foggy little isle Bloody our trains again Barcelona Oh canoodling when the Cuban lights are low You can stuff your banana in the Copacabana I'm going back to Cuba Patty Throw Bloody old trains again made it um, back to your most recent album. Yeah. Can you tell me about Jess? Well, once again, mm. I'm really mm. glad you picked that one out, and I don't think anyone else has. And I wasn't very confident about recording that song, putting it on the record, because, you know, it is about somebody who dies, who is 
the same age as me. And um, that is a difficult thing to deal with, you know, in life and in music. And um, Jess was a, a friend of Kimbley's from um, a very long time ago when he was uh, an archaeologist at Cambridge uh, University. Um, and uh, he, him, him and Jess and several other people in the area um, started off the Westo Saxon, Anglo-Saxon village. Um, and at West Stone, Suffolk. At West Stone in Suffolk. And uh, and so basically that's where he met Jess. Uh, and they were friends for a very long time. And he wrote that song after she passed away. Um, and it's very beautiful. Obviously, the age we are, I mean, this happens a lot. You know, and it's... I mean, obviously, I mean, a lot, most rock and roll songs are quite joyful. You know, like the classic songs, they're about, you know, meeting somebody for the first time, like the excitement, you know, like having a good time, you know, rocking it up and like meeting a beautiful girl for the first time, if it's a man, etc. You know, and then they're sort of very exuberant. And obviously, we still want to be exuberant, you know, and we still are, and we usually are. But a lot of our, you know, quite a big chunk of our experiences now are actually to do with people dying, you know, and then, you know, it's not going to go away. Mm. Yeah, you know, that's actually take one of Jess on um, Into the Rest of the Day. And, um, and we did sort of more takes, and which I think were technically better. But I remember Lee saying, oh, you've got to use take one because... It's got that little guitar phrase at the beginning, which just sounds like a bird singing, mm. you know? And then on the other side, for some reason, it, it's there, but it doesn't sound like a bird singing. And then, you know, when we were at this funeral, it was like it was in a woodland burial ground, you know, like Jess was actually buried like under trees. And it was, you know, the first, you know, about like it being the first day of summer. It was actually the first nice day of the year, you know, and the birds were singing, you know. So in a way, it's looked like the birds are singing on the song, you know. So, but I mean, that's an example of like um, why, you know, you need to collaborate. Mm. You know, well, it's always at least it's an example of why I'm sort of not as good if I don't collaborate. <laughs> Great stuff. So um, it, it sounds like you've got um, lots of new music to uh, come out and you're, you're uh-huh. still playing live and uh, no, yeah. and there's still much more music yeah. to come. Yeah, I mean, there's some. I mean, I don't want to sit here and say, I'm going to be prolific. Because, like, I mean, I'm knocking on a bit. And, you know, when I write, I honestly, you know, like, I honestly don't know if this is actually my last flourish mm. any time I do it. Mm. I mean, no, there is that. And there's this situation where now we have actually got a best of compilation in the pipeline. But you know, there's like public relations people involved, which means like there's a timetable involved. So we're talking to them and we don't know when it's going to happen. And then only after that can we then start thinking about a new album of original material. And but obviously, in the meantime, we've been writing another album right after that, you know, but that's kind of completely 
like just in our heads at the minute. So, you know, when I'm telling you all this, I mean, it's on the strength of what the music that's actually spinning around in my head <laughs> rather than that what anybody's got any chance of actually hearing, Mike, in the next couple of years. But I don't, I, I'm pretty confident, confident there will be something. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Kim and Lee. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, listening to Enjoy the rest of your day, as, as well as the range of music came across across your uh, brilliant career. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Well, no, I'm, I mean, thanks for taking the interest. You know, I mean, it's you know, just very occasionally somebody does, and that, it means a lot. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's been almost 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.